Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Anne Hyatt, who is an author, a podcast host, and a CEO consultant. She's the author of Bet on Yourself, Recognize, Own, and Implement Breakthrough Opportunities. And throughout her career, Anne has had the pleasure and opportunity to work at some amazing companies such as Amazon and Google, and for some incredible CEOs in terms of Marissa Mayer, Eric Schmidt, and Jeff Bezos. And we're going to talk to Anne about not only her career, but her book, as well as how, as you, the listeners, can really think about how you can recognize, own, and implement your own breakthrough opportunities to advance your career, to achieve whatever goals you are working on. So Anne, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you. I really enjoyed reading your book. And I also enjoy listening to your podcast. And so hopefully it's nice for you to be on the other side of the mic today. I always love... It is. Okay, good. I'm glad. I always love starting with a warm-up question. And so my warm-up question from you is, I think I read in your book, and I've also heard you say on another podcast that you've got a large family. So I would love mm-hmm. to know, what's a favorite childhood memory or experience that you had with your family when you were growing up? Oh, I love this warm-up question. No one's ever asked me that before. So yes, I am the oldest of seven children. So I come by my organizational skills <laughs> very naturally because that's how you get anything done in a big family. And I honestly think my favorite childhood memory Uh, might surprise a lot of people. The first part of my childhood, my dad was a fighter pilot. He flew the F-4 Phantom fighter jet. And then he went to law school. And one summer in the middle of law school, at the end of his studies, he clerked for a judge in St. Louis, Missouri. My parents rented a house. We had three three and a half kids, three kids and one on the way at that point. And my parents rented this house for the summer for while my dad was clerking. And it had children's bedrooms and it was furnished and, you know, they just brought their suitcases. And so we arrived at this house where we were going to be living for four months and there were zero toys. My parents had just assumed a furnished house with children's bedrooms would have the toys in it. We literally had nothing. And I kid you not, that was the best summer of my entire life. We played stickball in the backyard. We caught fireflies. My parents made up this children's story that they would just tell off the top of their heads every night called the Mouskowitzes. And each each of us girls had a, a character, a little mouse named after us. And it was just this wild adventure to be continued every single night. Honestly, best summer of my entire life. You've, no choice. You've gotten me thinking about back to when I was a kid and all the games that my friends and I used to make up with just out of our own ingenuity and creativity. Yeah. And I think that's what happens when there's nothing else there but just each other's company and maybe a, yep. a, at least in my case, like a, a ball or a baseball bat mm-hmm. or something. And, and all of a sudden we have some kind of pseudo sports game that's like active, but <laughs> isn't really anything else. But I love that story. Aww. And I Aww, think that's thanks. such a great, that's such a great vacation. Okay. So where <laughs> I want to start with this is One of the companies that you worked at is a company everyone knows, which is Amazon. And that's where you Mm -hmm. started off your career. But Amazon today wasn't where Amazon was when it first (laughs) came on your your radar and when you started your career. So could you talk to me a little bit about how was that first job search? How did you even discover Amazon? And how did the opportunity to work for Jeff Bezos come about? This must have been a master plan of the universe because it certainly was not on my radar at all. 
So after my dad finished law school, we moved to Seattle, Washington. So my family still today lives in the house in Redmond, Washington. We moved to in 1985. My parents did not anticipate how that would change the course of the rest of my entire life. So Amazon headquarters was five minutes drive from the front door of where my parents still live right now. So personal computing revolution happened all around us. I went to University of Washington, which is a very tech forward school. So I was kind of surrounded by tech, even though I had zero interest in it (laughs) when I was young. I wanted to be a professor. I thought the greatest job in the world would be reading and writing books for a living. And yes, I was a very serious child, obviously, if that was my dream job. But I graduated from undergrad in 2002. And that was immediately after the dot-com bust. And Seattle, because it was a very tech-heavy economy, the jobs had really evaporated overnight. So I and none of my classmates really had any job opportunities waiting for us on graduation. So while I was studying full-time, I had two student jobs, one at Suzlo Library, restocking books, and the second was at the European Union Center on campus. So this is really dating myself. But back in 2002, that was the year that the euro was launched. Do you say launched with a currency? That was, anyway, it came out at the European Union Center. We were hosting these events with like economists from universities across Europe and talking about what this means for global business and economies. And I just thought it was fascinating. So that was the first time kind of the business aspect of my curiosity was awoken because of the launch of the Euro. I applied to 50, maybe literally 100 places getting ready for graduation and didn't get a single even phone screen. And so the director of the European Union Center suggested that I apply at Amazon because his wife worked in recruiting there. And that is literally the only reason I submitted a resume ever. And that off the top of his head comment changed the trajectory of my entire life. It took me nine months of three rounds of very grueling interviews to get that job. But yeah, my very first job at 22 years old was working directly for Jeff Bezos in the early foundational years of Amazon. They weren't even profitable yet, if you can imagine such a day. Yeah, for sure. And it's such a great story. And it is interesting and curious just to know that the reason why it really came on your radar and how you got nudged by it just happened to be because uh, just through someone in contact with you whose wife had worked at Amazon. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that part is interesting. But what's also interesting to me is Of all the roles at the time that you could have taken at a company like Amazon, the one that landed in front of you or that you went about with was the one working uh, with the CEO. So how did that part come about? (laughs) Some luck and insanely hard work. So it was luck in terms of timing. So he had just had an opening in his office. One of his junior assistants transitioned to a new role at the company. And so there was an opening for just a general admin. I'd never been an assistant before and that I had never occurred to me to apply for that kind of job. But I'd scored really well in my first round of interviews, which was with every assistant in the company. And I honestly, looking back, can see I did not prepare myself at all for that first round of interviews. I hadn't researched the company or what their particular challenges were or their growth goals for the coming year. I didn't know who was on their board of directors. I didn't, I hadn't done any homework really. But by the end of that first round of interviews, I was there passion for what they were doing was so infectious that I went and read everything about it. And I got really excited. And then three months went by before I got a call back for a second round. And that's when the opening in Jeff's office had just happened. So it was really lucky that I'd just interviewed. They had me in mind right when this opportunity came. Then I had to work insanely hard because that second round of interviews was grueling. I was interviewed by all of the senior vice presidents in the company, which seemed like an enormous waste of time because I was 22 and had no idea what I was doing. But the reason 
that I didn't know it at the time, but the reason it was all VPs was because they were evaluating me for a fit with Jeff. Three of them have been assigned to find my breaking point, even see if they can make me cry. Not to be mean, but really to see, can you hack it? Can you keep a cool head? Can you handle complex problems? Did I have the emotional maturity to not only survive, but thrive in that kind of environment. And I'm happy to say that I passed that test. So then my last interview was just with Jeff Bezos himself. So that's how I ended up there. That's an incredible story. And let's just say first that that is an insane interview process. But on one side Mm -hmm. of the coin, I could very much see that particularly being your first job out of college, that can be insanely daunting and overwhelming, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly Mm -hmm. interviewing with a bunch of VPs and SVPs. But on the flip side of it, I could Mm -hmm. also see it being, you don't know what you don't know at that point, right? And what's (laughs) at that point, what's the difference between a VP and an SVP or whomever versus if you were, I don't know, maybe more senior in your career and you understand the magnitude and the gravity behind it. So I'm not suggesting it's easy at all, but sometimes ignorance might be blessed. Oh, 100%. Naivete was on my side because I didn't fully appreciate what was happening to me. Even in that third round when they had not told me in advance my last interview would be with Jeff. And at this time, I mean, he wasn't like by any stretch, like the wealthiest or most powerful man on earth that he is today, but he was a celebrity. He had been Time Magazine's person of the year in 1999. He was definitely a local, like locally known in Seattle. He was, you know, there was articles in the Seattle Times every single day about Amazon or Jeff or something. So when he walked in the door, I definitely knew who he was. But I think one of the things he liked about my interview was that I just treated him like a normal person. I wasn't overly starstruck or overly deferential to him. And then it wasn't until a couple months into once I got the job, I was like, what am I doing here? I have no business having this job. But I think this is true looking back. And I really observed this over the three years that I worked for him was Jeff had this habit of hiring for passion alignment, for curiosity, for intelligence, much more so than skill. One, because back then we were doing things every day that no one in the world had ever done before. So we were just every single person, no matter how senior or junior you were, you were making it up as you went. So he really just had to hire for that grit and ambition and passion alignment. I think if I was in front of somebody like that now, I probably wouldn't have been as cool as I was back then. So getting the chance to work with Jeff Bezos, looking at from the outside and having read your book must have been an incredible opportunity. I'm sure there's a lot to learn. I would just be curious to know, could you share maybe a a lesson or maybe a favorite lesson or something that you learned from working with Jeff that you've tried to model either in your own career or in your own life? We could be here for the next 10 hours. I, <laughs> sure. was, yeah. I often say that working for Jeff was better than business school. I didn't, I don't have an MBA. I did it the hard knocks way. <laughs> so there's a couple things that do stand out. And the first is about how he hires, which I just talked about a little bit. He really invests in surrounding himself with the highest possible quality of person. So for example, when I was leaving three years later, because I got into my dream PhD program at Berkeley and um, we were looking for my replacement. And I, I knew almost a year in advance that I was leaving, that I would be going to grad school, moving to California. And so we spent a lot of time trying to hire my replacement and he just rejected, rejected, rejected what felt like hundreds of people that I thought were very qualified. They certainly had more experience than I did when he hired me. But at the end, I was approaching the date I had to leave the company and he still hadn't chosen my replacement. I wanted to have a lot of time to like train them and no. And so I said, look, we have to please reconsider some of these like great candidates. And he said something to me that's been my hiring mantra ever since. He said, I am only ever going to hire people I have to hold back, not push forward. 
He was looking for that creativity, that grit, that ambition, that alignment. And I think of that all the time when I'm either hiring for my company now myself or when I was hiring for my teams I built at Google or when I'm advising my clients now is, is this a person you're going to have to hold back because they're so passionate about what you're working on rather than having somebody who's really reactionary and expecting you to give them a to-do list? So that's the first of many lists. I can, I'm happy to keep going. <laughs> no, I love, one, I love that. Just. I love that example. And yeah. I think you're right in the sense that particularly if given knowing what we know about Amazon and just their high bar for what they wanted to do yeah. and the level of expectations they had for uh, or, uh, their own aspirations, right? Mm-hmm. I think that makes a ton of sense. And certainly having been in those hiring situations before, it, it can seem like a lot of times uh, you would want the path of least resistance to be able to mm. you know, get the process done or escalation of commitment and, and those types of things. And I think there yeah. certainly is a cost and a pain associated with an unfilled wreck. But if you have values and priorities of having that high bar for hiring, sometimes yeah. you have to have the confidence in yourself to know that whatever short-term pain you're encountering is going to pay off over the longer term. Well said. That's absolutely his hiring philosophy. And I think there's a reason why people often ask me, like, if you could choose just one word to describe Jeff Bezos, what would be? And my answer is always relentless. Mm -hmm. Like he is relentlessly in the pursuit of his goals and ambitions. But there is, I think, something really remarkable about him is that the average tenure of his direct reports is 18 years. 18 years reporting to someone that everyone would describe as relentless means that he's investing a lot in you. Once you earn your place there, he's going to be sure that he gives as much to you as you're giving to your job and your impact there. And that's a high bar. Yeah. And so you really get opportunities that you would never get anywhere else. There's such a high degree of trust once you're in. So yeah, you're right. Like he invests in that. He's not going to fill that seat with somebody mediocre. He would, he'll take the pain now for the long-term gains. And I think that's a great articulation of the payback. And on that notion, one of the things that always struck me, because I believe you when you say relentless, but I also think about, he stayed on as CEO for Amazon for quite some time. He decided to really not focus on profitability for quite some time. He weathered certainly some big wins and then some failures for products as well. Right. And yep. so while there is a certain amount of relentlessness that I know that he has, the ability to go at it for that long and to have the there there is a patience that is coupled with that relentlessness. Or I don't know if it's patience or if it's focus on a goal or something, because mm. not all of those things happened overnight. And so it's this interesting nuance, this interesting duality, at least to me as an outsider, of having yeah. some relentlessness and a high bar of what you want out of people while still mm-hmm. being able to be dogged at it. Because if you try to run a sprint every day over something that really is meant to be a marathon, that's Mm going to be really challenging. But somehow Mm -hmm. he's managed to thread the needle, at least from an outsider's perspective of figuring out a way of, if I believe I'm going to be in this for the long term, how do I still stay focused uh, while not necessarily maybe uh, running too quickly out of the gate? Everything you just pointed out is the difference between these exceptional organizations and good or even impactful ones. Being able to do that and not only like for a year or five years, but to do it for 20 years without burning people out while staying focused. I wouldn't use, I wouldn't necessarily describe him as patient. I think your word for a focus was the correct one. And that's exactly it. Like he, never took his eye off the prize and he always held you accountable to doing the very best you could do. If you showed up today and you were not your best self, you're going to hear about it. 
But if you showed up today and it was your best and we made some mistakes, I love that you pro- pointed out we de- definitely had massive failures. Everything now looks so like shiny and sure. gold-plated uh, that Amazon does. There were massive failures, huge risks we were taking. As I mentioned, when I started there, they weren't yet profitable. So we had very stressful board meetings. I remember when he was trying to launch or trying to pitch super, not super safe, Amazon Prime to the board. They thought it was so crazy that it would single-handedly bankrupt the company and were considering bringing in a quote-unquote professional CEO because they thought it was so insane because as you said, and now he's famous for not being deterred by short-term profitability, but always focusing on that long-term horizon. People thought he was nuts back then. Now he looks like a genius and he was, but he, they thought he was insane. People didn't love that about him back then. So that relentless pursuit of that goal, that tireless pursuit, and then knowing how to not burn out your best players right. while sprinting a marathon right. is an art. And we could definitely talk about that for like the next two weeks. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I, what I always <laughs> tell people too, is that if you want AWS and Kindle, you have to be able to stomach fire. And, oh, I love that. And, yes. and I think that is what encapsulates that relentlessness and focus. And also mm-hmm. to your point, giving your team the leeway and the space to have a fire so that you can then have an AWS mm-hmm. after that, because there mm-hmm. is a there's a needle to thread on that, because there's a very easy way where fire could it, other types of things like fire do really hurt companies because yeah. there isn't the psychological safety to to keep going back to try to innovate. So I think what yep. he was able to do with that and what the team was able to do with that really was a testament to balancing that duality of being relentless while also being focused. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one story in the book I, that I did not know about, but I loved reading about was about a trip you helped him plan down to Texas in a helicopter. <laughs> Could you share that yeah. story? Oh, I still get sweaty palms every time I tell this story. <laughs> I'll do the succinct version of this. It was a wild journey. It, so what I'm, the story I'm about to share is the worst day of my professional life ever. I hope never to beat this record, but it's one that I'm really glad happened because it changed me in significant ways. So yeah, Jeff came to my desk. It was just like three or four months after I'd been hired. It was the first time he'd come to me directly with a project. So I was really excited. He came to my desk with a piece of paper that had a long series of numbers on it. And he said, hey, I need to visit these properties in Texas next week. I've got Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to visit. And I was like, okay, yay, I've got a project. And then I looked at this piece of paper and I couldn't make sense of it. It wasn't addresses. What I didn't know and nobody knew at the time was he was looking at buying large plots of land in the middle of nowhere, West Texas. So I plotted it out and I realized that these locations were too far apart. I had chartered a jet to go from Seattle down to West Texas, but there weren't that many runways in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So I couldn't reposition the jet to make it easier to visit all these locations. And they were too far apart to drive. And so I went to my manager, John. I said, John, we either need more days, more time, or we need to narrow down the locations. And he did not even look up. He just said, no, is not an answer. Figured out. So again, I'm 22. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to (laughs) problem solve this. And I thought, okay, how can I, I can't move these locations closer. What's more agile than the jet and faster than driving? And I was like, helicopter? So I went to John. I was like, how about we hire a helicopter? And he was like, sure, do that. I don't have a helicopter in my Rolodex. I don't know how to do that. So I reached out to the charter company and they connected me with a pilot, a local pilot there in Texas. And off he went on this first trip to Texas. He came back like a kid on Christmas morning. He was so excited. And he said, okay, great. I've narrowed down the properties. I want to go back and see my favorite two and I'll decide which one I'm going to buy. And at this point I thought, great, I have a helicopter guy. I know what I'm doing. No problem. 
by this point, I had come to realize how little I understood about my job or how to be successful there. I had this notebook on the side of my desk where I would write down all the acronyms I didn't understand and the people they were talking about that I didn't know and just giving myself homework. So I would come in a couple of hours before everyone else each morning to do my research, to read journals, to get to know the tech speak, et cetera. So I'm in the office. I think it was just me and security in the building at the time, no one else. And I got a call on my desk phone from the charter pilots. They had never called me before. And they said, okay, Anne, I don't want to alarm you. So I'm instantly alarmed. And they said, but there's been an emergency beacon gone go off and there has been a helicopter crash in the area. I said, we don't know if it's him because it's just one of those automated beacons. But I mean, they were in the middle of nowhere. I just, my hand started shaking so bad I couldn't hold a pen. My gut dropped and I thought, I have just killed Jeff Bezos. Not only maybe killed Jeff Bezos, but the entire company because the entire value of Amazon was based on faith in Jeff and his crazy vision for what he would be able to pull off eventually. So I call John, my manager at home, tell him what's happening. We agree we need to assemble an emergency board meeting and get ready for if it was him, if he's dead, if he's seriously injured, if he's alive, if it wasn't him. We wanted to be prepared for all scenarios. But while he was getting all the board onto a phone call, I started calling local hospitals, not using his name because I was hoping it wasn't him and I didn't want to create a false story. And this is before Google Maps existed. So I literally had a physical map and like trying to figure out where hospitals would be and where they might have taken him. And it was like the fourth or fifth hospital I called where they finally asked, okay, are you family? So I knew I'd found him. He calls in what felt like forever later, patch him immediately into the board of directors meeting where he convinces them not to issue any kind of proactive statements. It was Jeff. He did crash in the helicopter that I had hired for him and nearly died. But thankfully, as we all know now, that was not the end of his life and thankfully not the end of my career. So after he talked to the board, he asked to speak with me and I thought he was going to fire me. I thought nearly killing your boss is a reasonable, fireable offense. But instead he said probably the nicest words ever said to me professionally. He said, Anne, I hear you're really good under pressure. And he probably said something after that. I think I blacked out. I just, I was just so relieved that he was alive, that he was fine. He was even laughing and he was not upset with me. And something really important happened after that. I no longer was this 22 year old who had no business having this job and no idea what she was doing. Both of those things were true. But now he saw me as somebody who could keep calm under pressure, who could manage up to very senior people, who could ask the right questions, be really resourceful, and could be trusted in high stress situations. And most importantly, it changed the way I saw myself. And so the rest of my career at Google, at Amazon was really outside of the box. He threw crazy projects at me that I, according to my job description, should never have been involved in, like huge launch events when we were launching for the first time product categories like jewelry or sporting goods. We were launching to Japan. I got to work on some of those projects. I got to be in the war rooms and see things. Now, I was the junior most person there. I was just keeping the lights on basically, but it really changed the trajectory of my learning. And that's why it became my business school because I was much more apprenticed in that role than I probably would have been otherwise had I not been tested by complete disaster very early on in our partnership. I think back to my own career and I very much have moments where I felt like I made a step change or in some cases where I felt like I arrived at that various point. And to me, this sounds like one of those moments for you in a very big yeah. way. Not yeah. that you weren't before, but oh, someone yeah. potentially is not just someone, but the CEO of a very, very <laughs> valuable company, potentially almost dying and like being able to navigate that and mm -hmm. to get that kind of feedback after that. I don't know if it really tops that. And 
the, what I'm curious to know about from you is after that, I don't know how you top a pressure situation like that, but <laughs> I do know that you went on to, like you said, do a lot mm -hmm. of other big projects, a lot of things that were ambiguous and certainly to work mm -hmm. in environments where there was a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty, but also a lot of oh, expectation yeah. and pressure. And so I'm just curious. I know there are a lot of people out there who really do want to work in those environments, but sometimes struggle because of either just mm -hmm. The pressure that comes from it, perhaps maybe some feelings of imposter syndrome, or perhaps even just sure. just general just fear. So I'm just curious, what enabled you to work through those and navigate those, and just any just general advice for how other people can do that? I definitely want to add an asterisk here. It makes me sound so brave and like I had it all figured out. Like I was terrified, sure, and fair. probably the whole time I was there. Yeah. But one, I think it was an environment where there was psychological safety. Even though I knew Jeff would hold my feet to the fire if I disappointed him or didn't perform at my potential, he was always measuring me against my potential, not someone else's. So I had some safety to experiment. Also, we were doing things that no one had ever done before. And I saw this behavior being modeled from every level of the company, whether you were the receptionist or Jason Kylar or these early executives. What was his name? Jeff. Oh, his name just flew out of my brain, who really figured out the algorithm for the warehouse fulfillment centers that made super saver shipping and prime possible. Like I saw them doing things that even though they were the senior most people in the company, they had no idea how to do it because they were inventing the wheel. Because I saw it modeled, I knew that I would be okay if I, as long as I was curious and that meant asking a lot of questions, which can be really scary because that's like shining a spotlight on all the things you don't know. I think that's the biggest barrier to people wanting to up-level is they're unwilling to ask those questions and expose their lack of expertise or business acumen or something. Ugh, just do that. Get it over with. Rip off the Band-Aid. So I think that's the first part. The second is the environment. And the third was I just really wanted to be in those rooms. Looking back, it wasn't – this makes it sound like I had this big master plan. I did not. But looking back, there were three things across my career that consistently helped me show up, even though I'm a naturally very timid person. I am not this big, bold, jump off a cliff without a parachute kind of person. My nature is very timid and perfectionist in all the negative connotations. But I was nurtured out of this. I'm so grateful because early tech, just there was no place for that. There was no place for hesitancy or pause or like self-doubt. You didn't have time for that. And so there were three things I would do consistently to help myself be brave and step up. The first was I would regularly have a conversation with myself. I tend to do this towards the end of the year. My birthday is in October and you're doing your end of year personal evaluation. So it's a great time to ask yourself, what do I want to learn next in this next phase of my career? What are the expertise I hope to gain, the experiences I want to have? Who are the who do I want to follow? What stages do I someday want to be on? And how can I get myself one step closer to that? The second is how can I be exposed to leaders that I not only like, but want to become like? I had the great privilege of my managers were always worthy of that. I know that a lot of people don't have managers that they want to become like. So seek that out through volunteering for cross-functional projects or get involved in your community, but seek out high quality people that you want to emulate. And then the third is be self-disruptive. Don't sit firmly in your comfort zone or your little zone of genius thinking that that's a protective bubble because it is not. That is actually how you prime, you allow something else to disrupt you. So if you're the disruptor, that means exploring an expertise you don't have or doing a project you have no idea how to do or volunteering or asking a question in a meeting that will push you to the edges of your current abilities today and really help you advance through it. So that's my recipe for bravery when it does not come naturally for me. 
So something in there that you said, I think is really key and ties to a question I wanted to ask you anyway, is this idea of self-disruption. And if mm-hmm. disruption is too strong a word for folks out there, I would just say being proactive or intentional. But one of the things mm-hmm. that strikes me about you is that in some of the career moves you've made, you've taken on roles or jobs that didn't exist, either because they literally mm-hmm. didn't exist or they weren't a, a formal kind of job description or job rack. I think for people out there who do care about their career, at some point they do understand intuitively that just because there's a job posting doesn't mean that, or just because the only job postings out there are the only things that are in job postings or job descriptions, that there's this whole other slew of opportunities out there. But I would love yeah. to know if, what advice do you have just reflecting on your own experience about, for lack of a better word, incepting these things into reality? If you are someone who does want to chart your own course or be self-disruptive, how do you actually make that? happen because I think it sounds great in concept, but you've clearly figured mm. out a way to, to make it a reality. And I think a lot of people struggle between that gap of figuring out what do yeah. we do to actually make that real? I am a big believer that we can engineer serendipity. Mm-hmm. We can create yeah. our own luck. Yeah. And the first step is where we just started, which is know what you want. Not So many people walk through life, especially in their careers passively. They expect... I don't know, maybe it's because of the way our education system is built where it's just, oh, I go to kindergarten and then first grade and then whatever. And then I do go undergrad. And that's not how careers work. I've never once, even though I've worked for exceptional leaders and managers, never once have I had a boss or a colleague come to me and say, oh, Anne, I've been thinking about this untapped talent that you have and how to utilize it. And here's my ideas for it. No, <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's your job. So first is know what you want. Think about, in fact, I was just talking to a client yesterday. And I said, what is your individual SEO? What is the sentence, the terms that I would type into Google that would pull up your name? Now, think 10 years from now, what do you want your SEO sentence to be? And then let's reverse engineer that. Let's fill in the gaps between here and where you want to be. So first is know what you want. Second is being brave enough to ask for it. It's much easier once you know what you want. So here's three categories of things I think everyone needs regardless of your career stage. My CEO is out there down to my, you're in high school and you're working in your first job at Burger King. Like this applies to everyone in between. So the first is have a mentor. Hopefully that's your manager because this person really needs to know your talent, your skills, your ambitions, and can give you real-time feedback. When you're in your first job, my very first job, when I was 16, was as an office manager for a startup of five people. I had no idea what I was doing. I made a lot of mistakes. But they gave me a lot of feedback because they saw I was ambitious and wanting to learn. Second is seek out the leaders that you want to become like. Hopefully that's somebody you know, but probably not. So that's your mentor. The second category of person you need is a sponsor. Now, here's a mistake I see happen a lot. A sponsor should not be somebody too far out in front of you. A lot of people look for somebody who's 10, 15 years ahead of them in their career. That actually isn't very effective because they forgot how they got there. It was so long ago that either those contacts that that helped them out aren't fresh anymore. They really can't remember the steps to replicate to get to where they are today. So look for somebody who's just one or two steps ahead of you who just got invited into a team or just took on a big client account or sat down at a table you want to have a seat at, and then ask for them to help open that door for you or help you understand what you need to do to qualify for that room because they just did it. It's super fresh. (laughs) All the sacrifice and the risk-taking that they made is super fresh and they can give you that playbook. And then the third category of people is what I call avatar mentors. These are the people who are 20 years ahead of where you are right now. They're standing on the stages you want to be on. They're writing the books you hope to write. They have the expertise you want to become known for, whatever it is. And these people do not need to know you exist. 
So I have and they're an avatar because they're going to be a compilation, a mishmash of lots of different people out in the world. So for example, people who are avatar mentors to me are like Brene Brown, because I love her non-traditional approach to academics and the way she writes and her authenticity and how she invites people to be vulnerable and really challenge themselves. I want to be able to emulate that and have that effect through my work. Second is Sarah Blakely, self-made billionaire who is insanely brave in ways I am not. She credits her success in starting Spanx with just $5,000 in her backpack to the fact that she earned that $5,000 selling fax machines door to door for seven years. That takes a lot of resilience and being phased by rejection. I want to be brave like Sarah Blakely one day. I Another avatar mentor of mine is like Adam Grant. I love how he's modernizing like this approach to work and making it not suck. And I really like... So these are the people that I'm smooshing together as my avatar mentor. And then thanks to the internet, we can research that and reverse engineer. How did they get there? What were the steps that they took? You know, circles they were in, conferences attending, et cetera. And so I can use that as a playbook for myself and my growth goals. So that can really help empower you when you want to create your own luck. If you do those three things, have a mentor, have a sponsor, and have an avatar mentor, that will give you a bit of a playbook to know what to ask for. And then this sounds so simple, but not enough people do this. And this can be the differentiator between you and someone else. Because when you've done this thought work, you're going to see opportunities in their infancy. When it's just a little glint of an opportunity, you're going to be like, I'm going to raise my hand for that because that could lead me to this room or that could give me this expertise. And you'll see opportunities that just pass other people by. And that, I promise you, can be life-changing just in in those moments of raising your hand being like, oh, that's mine, even though it doesn't look like much at the moment. I like what you said in terms of, and really breaking it down for people for the types of people that they can look for to help advance and grow their careers. And I think a lot of times people intuitively understand others are important, but aren't really sure how to go and make that happen. And so I love the specificity of that. And the other thing I would say to that is by consistently doing what you said, you as an individual open up and increase the surface area for opportunities to, to marinate and exist, to marinate mm. its life, which is where the serendipity mm. comes into play. And the reality of it is, is that a lot of times in your career, decisions or opportunities are made or come about from rooms that you are not in. And so by having yes. people like you just mentioned, who are understanding of your goals, as well as your aspirations, uh, having those avatar mentors, having sponsors, having a mentor that increase also increases your surface area for opportunities to come about because they're aware of what you're hoping to do and what you bring to the table. I love that expression. I'm going to steal that from you. Go for I'm it. going to plagiarize that. Go for it. Because that's such a beautiful articulation that is so visual. I just did a training event this morning for a leadership team at Netflix. Mm-hmm. And they were asking me about that. They were this group of leaders who w- were really looking to go to the next level. They wanted to know, how do I create breakthrough opportunities for me to be seen as yeah. a leader Get, yep. you know, get my managers, the senior, senior leadership to take a bet on me. And I basically said that. I was like, look, you have to be brave enough for you to first, you have to say it out loud. Yeah. That's going to first be met with awkward silence. At least it always was for me because sure. it was so non-obvious what I, why I was asking for that. But I said, but then you're teaching people how to think of you yeah. and how to treat you. And your point is like spot on. Then your name is going to be mentioned in rooms that you didn't have access to and would have never you would have never come up otherwise. Because they're like, yeah, six months ago, Anne has this insane idea that she wanted to be helpful on this thing. But actually, this is a better application. So make your ambitions known. What do you want to learn? What do you want to experience? Who do you want to become? And then 
don't be afraid of that awkward silence. You might not know what to ask for first, but when you say those ambitions out loud, then those with the power to open that door for you, say your name at the right moment in those rooms you're not yet in and boom, everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of teaching people how to bet on themselves, it sounds like to me, just observing you from the outside, being in business for yourself now as has been doing CEO consulting and running your own business is a bet on yourself and your Mm -hmm. the next for the next stage of your career. So could you talk a little bit about your journey and decision to leaving some amazing tech companies to go and build your own thing and just we're just reflecting back on this. Like how has the journey been? How are you enjoying entrepreneurial life or solopreneurial life, having particularly worked in traditional tech companies for quite some time? It's been so great and so hard. Yeah. It's been the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> I <would> yes. Say. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I miss my team. Yeah. Look, I when I joined Amazon and Google, it was really scrappy. It was just like I knew everyone by name. It was just getting the right things done. By the time I left tech 15 years later, behemoths of companies, right? I had teams of experts at my fingertips. And then when I left, that's what I missed the most. More than any of the perks of like free food and bring your dogs to work and all that stuff. What I miss is my team. I miss my my collaborators, my experts. So yeah, being a solopreneur was a bit of like hitting a brick wall after working at an amazing organization like Google for 12 years. But it's also been the best of times. Look, the reason I left And it was a very hard decision. Like that was my family. That was my identity in all the good and bad ways of that. But the reason I wanted, I felt like it was right to leave was I had that conversation that I just outlined of like, am I spending too much time in my comfort zone? Having a role where you're firmly in your zone of genius is the dream until it's not, until you've seen it all before. You're always, you have all the answers, you're rinse and repeating your expertise. And that's when you know you're primed to be disrupted by something else. So I felt like I wanted to be the disruptor of myself. So I wrote down all the (laughs) favorite, this is so nerdy of me, but I literally created a, a spreadsheet and I wrote down literally every responsibility I had in my current job from the mundane to the glamorous. Then in column B, I floated over all those things that I was still excited about, the things that I thought were interesting, that were still going to continue to grow and challenge me. And then in column C, I thought, what if I 10X'd all of those? What would be the springboard opportunities within those areas that still really excite me? And I realized in order to grow in the ways I wanted to, I had to leave that comfort zone nest of Google where I knew how to get everything done and I always was going to be able to do it perfectly. And I really sat down and I wrote down a mission, vision, and value statement for myself. And that process took so long that on my website, I literally have a download to help you do it for yourself because it was so excruciating for me. I want to pay that forward. But I had to know, how do I want to show up in this world? What is my living legacy? What is the impact that I want to have? I could have gone to work for another tech billionaire, but I didn't, that didn't make my heart sing. I didn't feel like that was the legacy I wanted to leave. While I'm very, very proud of the work and it was a great, greatest privilege of my life, I want to pay that forward. So what I realized was I wanted to align myself with underrepresented entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs all over the globe who are working on problems in their communities, on the planet, and literally making the world a better place. So I actually left Google thinking I would take six months off and figure out what I wanted to do next. And in the meantime, (laughs) something else happened. So while I was working for Eric Schmidt, the CEO and then chairman of Google, he had a personal VC fund called Innovation Endeavors. And he would occasionally tap me on the shoulder to chat with some of his investment portfolio CEOs and just talk through this with her and that with him. It was so fun. I just loved it because I missed those gritty, insane, crazy, crazy growth years of an early startup. And so when I decided to leave and take some time to find myself again after not sleeping for 15 years, 
several of them tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I would love to bring you on board for a couple months for this project or this particular challenge we're having. And before I knew it, I had a consulting company. And it's really been very fulfilling. Now, I wish I had known that a pandemic was coming like nine months later. That would have been great to know. Honestly, I aligned myself with what would become the most in-demand service at the time because every single one of my clients was in crisis mode at the same time. And I had to learn really, really fast how to translate the best practices of these Silicon Valley super performers to different growth stages, risk tolerances, industries. By rule, I don't take two clients in the same industry. So I have one fintech, one ed tech, one health tech. So there's no accidental conflict of interest. And it also doesn't allow me to get into the giving the answers mode. I am there to ask questions and make them their best self. And so that has been terrifying, thrilling, <laughs> exhausting, exhilarating, all of the things all at the same time. But I've grown in ways that were really meaningful to me in ways that I couldn't have had I stayed within a well-oiled organization. That's a great story. And as someone who's also made the leap to entrepreneurship, it, it certainly resonates, the elements of it certainly resonate with me. And I also think that it also aligns really nicely just with your own kind of trajectory of finding opportunities that may not be visible on the surface, but either through self-awareness as well as putting yourself out there, as we talked about, in, into the ether and letting opportunities marinate has come about in a really nice way. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about your book, as well as your own career advice and a little bit about what you're up to now. If people want to buy the book or engage with you further, where should they go? Where can they find you? So the best place to connect with me would be first the book's website, which is betonyourselfbook.com. BetOnYourselfBook.com has links to all the resources I've mentioned, to my socials. I'm Ann Hyatt on Instagram. I'm Ann R. Hyatt on Twitter. And another great place to connect with me is to follow me on LinkedIn. I publish three or four articles a week, a longer form newsletter, and just a lot of the types of tips that we've gone through in this conversation on your podcast. So if this resonated with you, I hope you'll follow me there and connect and make this a two-way conversation rather than just a one-way of listening to us. So I would really, I would love that. I would love to hear what people think of the book and what other unanswered questions they might have that we could dive into next. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.